I invite you to open your Bibles this morning to Luke chapter 14. Luke chapter 14, I'll begin reading in verse 25. If you don't have a Bible with you, there is one in the rack in front of you. And if you don't own one at home, consider that our gift to you this morning. And we also would invite you to look at the screens if you would choose. The words may be there as well. Luke chapter 14, beginning in verse 25. Now great crowds accompanied Jesus, and he turned and said to them, If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. Whoever does not bear his own cross and come after me cannot be my disciple. For which of you, desiring to build a tower, does not first sit down and count the cost, whether he has enough to complete it? Otherwise, when he has laid a foundation and, it is, and is not able to finish, all who see it begin to mock him, saying, This man began to build and was not able to finish. Or, what king... Going out to encounter another king in war will not sit down first and deliberate whether he is able with 10,000 to meet him who comes against him with 20,000. And if not, while the other side is yet a great way off, he sends a delegation and asks for terms of peace. So therefore, any one of you who does not renounce all that he has cannot be my disciple." This is the word of the Lord. We have been looking the last several weeks uh, in a series that we have called Built to Last. And in this series, we have been talking about what are those elements, what are those disciplines, what are those mindsets that we need to have, not just to have a faith, a Sunday faith, a feel-good faith, a a faith that responds to maybe an immediate crisis in our life or an immediate inspirational moment, but a faith, rather, that is built to last and weather all the storms of life and all the struggles of life, and a faith that will stand not just for our lifetime, but really for an eternity and as a witness and a testimony to future generations. How do we build a prevailing church and our basis for this entire series has been out of 1 Corinthians chapter 3, verse 10. And it was the words that the Apostle Paul was writing to a group of Christians who were just starting a brand new church. And they were just a few of them. I mean, it would have been maybe just 10 or so of us gathered together in a house. That would have been the church at Corinth. And here's what the Apostle Paul said to that church as they met in 1 Corinthians, 10, uh, 1 Corinthians 3, verse 10. According to the grace of God given me, like a skilled master builder, I laid a foundation. And someone else is building upon it. And then he says these words, let each one take care how he builds upon it. In other words, we have to be intentional. The the faith that we have is the bedrock faith that is immovable. It's a faith that's in Jesus Christ, the Son of God, the Savior of the world. We, we get that. But so many times as Christians, we think that's all there is to it. And what Paul was saying to the, to the early church, he said, no, no, listen, you have to take care how you build on that foundation. He goes on in verse 12 and he says this to them. Now, if anyone builds on the foundation with gold, silver, and precious stones. Now, those are all expensive, right? Those are, those are valuable items. Those are things that will endure. If, if he builds gold, silver, precious stones, then he uses another list. Or wood, hay, and straw. Those are all cheap things. Things that don't cost much. Each one's work will become manifest for the day will disclose it. Because it will be revealed by fire, 
and the fire will test what sort of work each one has done. If the work that anyone has built on the foundation survives, he will receive a reward. Now, if that sounds familiar, it's because that's exactly what Jesus said in Luke chapter 14. He said, who among you would build a tower that wouldn't first sit down and count the cost? Because the building material that endures is costly. It's not cheap. And it doesn't come easily. And so this morning, what I want to talk about is the cost of building a faith that lasts. The expense that's involved. And from this passage in Luke chapter 14, I think there are three comparisons that we're confronted with as believers, as followers of Jesus. Three decisions, three choices we make. The first one is between following and accompanying Jesus. We'll get to that in a moment. Participating with Jesus in the crucifixion or just witnessing the crucifixion. And then finally, the difference between starting a journey of faith and finishing a journey of faith. So I want to look at each of these, the difference between following and accompanying Jesus, the difference between participating and witnessing the crucifixion, and the difference between starting a journey and finishing a journey of faith. So let's look at these each one by one. First, following versus accompanying Jesus. Luke chapter 14 uh, begins with these words that, the, that Luke is writing for us. He says, Now great crowds accompanied Jesus. Now, there's a difference between people who accompanied Jesus and those whom Jesus said, come, follow me. And and Luke is being intentional here to say that there were more people around Jesus than just those who were following him. Think about this. When you read the Gospels and you read the stories of Jesus, you find lots of people who accompany Jesus in lots of places. For example, the Pharisees and the Jewish leaders were usually in the crowd. They were questioning, they were challenging, they were testing Jesus, they were always accompanying Jesus. There was another person who accompanied Jesus for the entire time whose name was Judas Iscariot. And here's a spoiler alert for you, he betrayed Jesus later. Remember, he was the one who sold Jesus out. He was one of the twelve. He accompanied Jesus Throughout his entire ministry, we read later in the gospel accounts of two men, two leaders, Pontius Pilate and King Herod, who, based on their questioning of Jesus, had clearly been aware of the teachings and ministry of Jesus throughout the course of his teaching career. They they were aware of Jesus. They, they, they had accompanied Jesus in the sense that they were keeping tabs on what was going around. And then there were always crowds. There were always these large groups of people, 5,000 people that Jesus fed on one occasion, 4,000 on another occasion. There were always people who were accompanying Jesus, but Jesus makes a distinction. He said, it's not enough for you just to accompany me. It's not enough for you just to be part of the crowd. What does he say in verse 27? Whoever does not carry their own cross and follow me cannot be my disciple. The difference between following Jesus and accompanying Jesus involves cross-bearing. That if you're going to follow Jesus, he says, you got to take up your cross and follow after me. You see, it's easy to accompany Jesus. Because the, the truth is, a person accompanies Jesus as long as it doesn't require change in her direction. But a person follows Jesus when he's abandoned his own way and has surrendered control over the direction of his life. 
A person accompanies Jesus when it's convenient and as long as Jesus proves an entertaining travel companion, providing support for his journey along the way. But a person follows Jesus when she has sacrificed her personal comfort and is willing to endure the suffering and loss in order to travel with Jesus. There's a difference between accompanying and following Jesus. And it's easy for us, listen carefully, it's easy for us to gather here Sunday after Sunday and call ourselves followers of Jesus. But unless your following Jesus involves taking up a cross, unless your following Jesus involves self-sacrifice, you are only accompanying him. And I'm glad you do. (laughs) I'm glad you come. Because there were people in the crowd who started out just accompanying Jesus, who ended up becoming followers of Jesus. But that's not where they stayed. And that's not what builds a faith that endures. A faith that endures is a faith that follows Jesus. A faith that endures looks like the faith of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. Dietrich Bonhoeffer was born in 1906 and was martyred in 1945 by the Nazis. Actually, it's, it's one of the great tragedies of the stories of D, uh, the life of Dietrich Bonhoeffer. He was a, a pastor in Nazi Germany who, who spoke out against what the Nazis were doing. And he was actually martyred for his faith literally just hours before the Allied troops arrived and the prison camps were set free. This is what Dietrich Bonhoeffer said about following Jesus as opposed to just being part of the crowd. He likened it to grace. He likened it to two different kinds of grace, cheap grace and costly grace. Listen to what he said in his book, The Cost of Discipleship. Cheap grace is the deadly enemy of our church. Cheap grace means grace sold on the market, grace without price, grace without cost. The essence of grace, we suppose, is that the account has been paid in advance, and because it has been paid, everything can be had for nothing. Cheap grace is the grace we bestow on ourselves. Cheap grace is the preaching of forgiveness without the requiring of repentance. Baptism without church discipline. Communion without confession. Cheap grace is grace without discipleship. Grace without the cross, grace without Jesus Christ living and incarnate. Costly grace is the treasure hidden in the field. For the sake of it, a man will gladly go and sell all that he has. It is the pearl of great price to buy which the merchant will sell all his goods. It is the kingly rule of Christ for whose sake a man will pluck out the eye which causes him to stumble. It is the call of Jesus Christ to which the disciple leaves his nets and follows him. Costly grace is the gospel which must be sought again and again and again. The gift which must be asked for, the door at which a man must knock, such grace is costly because it calls us to follow. And it is grace because it calls us to follow Jesus Christ. Above all, it is costly because it costs God the life of his son. And what has cost God much cannot be cheap for us. Above all, it is grace because God did not reckon his son too dear a price to pay for our lives, but delivered him up for us. Costly grace confronts us as a gracious call to follow Jesus. See, following Jesus is a costly grace. 
It's a grace that recognizes there is no resurrection, there is no new life without a crucifixion and a death. Dietrich Bonhoeffer understood that. Many of the disciples understood that and came to understand that more after they witnessed Christ giving his own life on the cross and then saw the power of the resurrection. See, following Jesus requires that we do more than just be witnesses of his crucifixion. We have to choose between participating in the crucifixion of Christ and simply standing on the sidelines as a witness. Listen to what the Apostle Paul said about this in Galatians 2.20. He said, I, I myself, Paul, the Apostle Paul, have been crucified with Christ. Therefore, I no longer live, but it is Christ who lives in me. And this life I live in the body, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and who gave himself up for me. Do you hear what he said? I don't live anymore. I've been crucified. I have taken up my cross. And I've followed after Jesus. And any life that's left in me is only life because it is the life of Jesus in me. He said later in Philippians chapter 3, listen to these words. He says, I want to know Christ. Yes, to know the power of his resurrection and to participate in his suffering, becoming like him in his death. I mean, this is a man who understood crucifixion like you and I will never understand crucifixion because he had witnessed crucifixions in his day and age. He had seen the Romans crucify people. And Paul is saying, I want to be crucified with Christ. I want to share in the fellowship of his sufferings, not just to be a bystander and to witness the cross of Christ, but to participate in it. It's what Jesus was saying in verse 26 of Luke 14. Listen to what he said. If anyone comes to me and does not hate his own father and mother and wife and children and brothers and sisters, yes, even his own life, he cannot be my disciple. That is a costly grace. That is a crucifixion participating grace. That's what he said you required. And you listen to these words. And you compare it to the cheap grace that we're so often to tempt people with. And you understand what it was that Dietrich Bonhoeffer was saying. This grace wasn't free. God's salvation is a gift. Yes, it is a gift, but it was not a gift that was without cost. It cost Jesus everything. And Jesus is saying, in order for you to pick up this gift of life I'm giving, you must be willing to lay down everything else. This teaching of Jesus that you must hate your father and mother, that you must hate your sister and brother, even hate your own life, you think, wait a minute, isn't, just, isn't this the same Jesus who just recently said that I'm to love my enemies? So on the one hand, I'm called to love my enemies, to pray for the people who persecute me, but I'm, he's also telling me that I need to hate my mother and father and my sister and my brother and my own life. What Jesus is saying is he's saying, compared to your commitment and devotion to him, everything falls to the sides. There is no relationship that is more valuable. There is no investment that is greater. That compared to loving and following Christ, everything else pales in comparison. And if you think about this, if you think about this teaching of Jesus, this invitation that Jesus is extending, it's easy to understand why Jesus would have a large crowd to come and hear his teaching that would get smaller the more they heard him. It runs completely counter to everything we think about when we think about church growth, don't we? 
That we think, oh, the crowds get bigger and bigger and bigger. But you read the gospel message and you realize that the crowds of Jesus get smaller and smaller and smaller until finally it's only one disciple standing at the crucifixion with Jesus. Just one. Why? Because Jesus continually pointed out to people that this is costly to follow me. It will cost you everything. You think, oh, wait a minute, Jesus, can you just, can you just maybe... Maybe don't, don't lead with the cost. Maybe start with the benefit. Lead with, your be, lead with the best part of the story first. And then maybe in the, quick, you know, in the quick disclaimer at the end of the commercial, just say all that other stuff really fast. But Jesus doesn't do it. Because he knows the cost of a saving grace. And it's the difference between a politician who will say anything and change any position so that you will come and be a part of his or her movement and following a tour guide on a dangerous expedition. Because if you're following a tour guide over difficult and tough terrain, you want that tour guide to tell you the truth and the whole truth. You want that tour guide to say, listen, if you want to make it through this journey, if you want to make it to your destination, there are things that you need to lay aside. You cannot bring with you all your household appliances and worldly goods. You're going to have to leave that stuff aside and take up a cross and follow me because you can't make this trip carrying all the baggage with you. And you want that, that leader of that expedition to be truthful with you, and that's what Jesus does. He says, I want to tell you what it means to follow me. I want to tell you what's involved in the cost. Because there's a difference between following and accompanying Jesus, and there's a difference between participating in the crucifixion and witnessing, and ultimately there's a difference between beginning a journey of faith and finishing a journey of faith. Jesus uses two illustrations in this passage. He talks about someone building a tower, and he talks about a king going off to war. Now, what's, what's interesting for us to consider is that in Jesus' day and age, when Jesus said, used these two examples, there were, there were things going on in culture and society that his listeners would have immediately clued into. The first one, if, who builds a tower without first considering the cost? There was a massive building project that had been going on in Jerusalem for years and years, for generations. It was the building of Herod's temple. You, you remember from the Old Testament, Solomon had built a temple for the glory of God. That temple had been destroyed. It had been rebuilt. There was another temple that was then destroyed again. And Herod, King Herod, had started building this massive temple in the city of Jerusalem. And building projects in that day and age took generations. I mean, we, you know, we look at the projects over here on our interstate and think, man, that's taken forever. That's nothing compared to how long it took to build major building projects. It would take 40, 50, 60 years And the people who finished the project were not the people who started the project, which meant that the people who started the project had to count the cost. They had to understand what was going to be needed long past the time that they were still going to be involved in the building project. And so the temple that was being built, Jesus knew something and had warned the crowds, and nobody had believed him. He said, listen, this temple is going to be destroyed. And within 40 years of Jesus' death, That temple was completely destroyed. And Jesus understood that. And he's saying, listen, 
Who goes into a building project without counting the cost of what's involved? What king goes off to war? See, there were rumors and, of war, and there were, there were skirmishes and uprisings all around Jesus. There were people among the Jews who believed that they could overthrow the Romans and kick them out of, from occupying um, Israel at the time. And that would have been a little bit like, like Rhode Island deciding that they could throw off the United States government. I mean, it was, it was a ridiculous thought. But there were those who believed it, and Jesus is saying, listen, what king goes off to war who's outnumbered that first doesn't sit down and come up with a plan? You have to have a plan. It's one thing to start a journey of faith, but if you want a faith that endures a lifetime, it's going to require some thought and some careful consideration of what is involved and what is cost. And what is true for an individual and their pursuit of faith is true for us as a church. It's not enough for us to say, well, we'll just get together and we'll do church and then we'll hope along the way that men and women, boys and girls, families uh, build a faith that lasts and that we'll have a church that prevails. No, it requires much more careful planning and thought than that. And at Southside, we've done that. Some of you have seen this before. It's more than just that we say we gather, we grow, and we go. We, we do these things because we believe these are three essential environments, three essential elements for any person who's going to build an enduring faith that we believe you must gather for worship as a people of God, to worship God the Father. That what we do in this place on any given Sunday matters. It's important that we, that we honor God with our, with our lives that we honor God with our, with our possessions, that we honor God together as a community. But that's not the only thing. Because that will not worship alone. We'll, gathering at a, one hour a week is not enough to build a faith that will last. We also say you have to grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus Christ. That in order to do that, you don't do that in rows. Growth requires a circle. That you, that you gather in a circle with other believers that, to understand what God what God's word says, what Jesus is teaching, to practice with one another what it means to follow after Jesus. This is why we talk about grow groups, why our schedule change at the end of the month of November is so critical because we we understand and recognize that we need to do all we can to create healthy and holistic small groups where men and women, boys and girls, can sit in circles and, and immerse themselves in God's word and experience community together, practice what God's word says together. So we grow in the grace and knowledge of Jesus. And finally, we go in the power of the Holy Spirit to be his church in the world, to be the hands and feet of Jesus. If you just show up at church on Sunday and sit in a Bible study and sit in a pew on Sunday, but then you leave out of here and it hasn't made a change, the power of the Holy Spirit isn't impacting the way you talk to people in stores and the way you deal with people in your businesses, then I wonder... I wonder what we're displaying to the world, what we're showing to the world, and what change, what transformation has really happened inside of you. And and as a church, we say, listen, these things, these three things are all important for all of us to do. Because I might like to hide in a worship service. I mean, after all, I come at 9.30, and I sit in the 9.30 worship service, and then guess what? I come into 11, and I sit, and I enjoy the hymns, and I enjoy the choruses, and I enjoy the band, and I enjoy the organ, and I get, I get charged up from it. But if I'm not intentional about being in a small group where there are other, other men and women who are involved who will hold me accountable, who will ask me tough questions, then I'm not going to grow in my faith. If I'm not serving, some of you say, well, I'm, I'm serving everywhere. But you're not experiencing growth through the study of God's word and through community. It's like this picture. You can tell what the picture is if you 
only use one color for each of them. But if you want to see the full picture, then it requires that we immerse ourselves, be intentional about the way we make disciples. And there's another diagram we want to show you about how we as a church have been intentional and what we want to do as, as far as seeing you become a fully devoted follower of Jesus. We look at our community around us and we recognize there are people literally from every nation, every tongue, every tribe, every background, every lifestyle, every, they're all around us. God has brought people from all over right here into our community. And many of them have no idea what goes on inside this building. But then there are those of you, there are those of you who maybe you would say, I'm just accompanying Jesus. I'm just a part of the crowd. But you come into the crowd and you come and you listen to the teachings of Jesus. And you're, you're curious. Maybe you don't believe everything that we believe, but you're listening to it and you, you're, you're drawn to it. Something's drawing, drawing you into it. Then there are those who become part. We say they're the congregation. These are people that say, this isn't just a church I attend. This is a church I'm a part of. I'm a member of this church. Like, a, like my finger is a member of my body or my hand is a member of my body. I'm a member. I'm a, I'm a contributing part of this. And then there are those who are committed who would say, you know what, it's more than just the fact I'm a member. I'm committed to this. I'm investing myself in this place. And then there are those who are the core. There are those who, who have crucified themselves. And the life that you see in them is the life of Jesus. These are the people who with the Apostle Paul, we could say, you can follow them because they're following Jesus. If you lose sight of Jesus, take a look at that person because they follow Jesus. Everywhere she goes, she's following Jesus. Everywhere he goes, he's following Jesus, the core. And what do they do? The core, they go back out and answer Jesus' call to go into all the world to share the good news of the gospel. This is what it means to be intentional as a church, to be a prevailing church, and to invest in people that they might build a faith that will last. But finishing requires patient persistence on your part as a believer. It's not something we can do for you. It's something that unless you are willing individually to count the cost, unless you are willing individually, personally, to answer Jesus' call to come, follow me, there's nothing that will ever change that that we can do in a program or we can do in a worship service because it's an issue of the heart. It's an invitation of Christ speaking to you saying, come and follow me. Those of you who are a part of, a, of the crowd, those of you who are accompanying Jesus, the invitation is come, follow me. And it will cost you everything, but you will gain eternity in exchange. There's nothing that you can lose in this life that Christ hasn't promised to return to you through the kingdom of God. C.S. Lewis said, you can, aim, you can aim for earth and miss heaven, but if you aim for heaven, earth is always thrown in. Isn't that great? What a great promise. So the question for you is, will you count the cost and make the investment to build a faith that lasts? Will you stop being content to be a part of the, just being part of the crowd accompanying Jesus? And will you commit to following Jesus? Will you stop being satisfied with simply witnessing the crucifixion and instead saying, like Paul, I want to participate in the sufferings of Christ that I may participate in the resurrection? Will you, like Dietrich Bonhoeffer, say, cheap grace isn't good enough because it's costly grace that saves Will you consider the consequences 
in order to be a part of a prevailing church instead of a church that simply peddles temporary satisfaction and a momentary Jesus high on a Sunday morning. Because we're called to something more than that. Listen, I, I used a lot of billing illustrations, and so I was thinking, how can I, how can I bring this into something that might, uh, might expand our thinking past just what is being built? And I was thinking about a microwave. I like microwave. I use a microwave a lot at my house. But let me tell you primarily what a microwave is used for. A microwave is primarily used for leftovers, to reheat them. A microwave is used for TV dinners and quick meals, instant food. Food that often may satisfy a temporary hunger, but it's nothing that you're going to want to be a part of at a banquet feast at your Thanksgiving meal. I mean, a microwave is useful. And a microwave is often what we want. We want a microwave kind of faith. A faith that says, let me, just, let me just put in what I need for a few seconds and get out what can satisfy me for this moment. But a faith that will endure, a faith that will last is not a microwave faith. A faith that will last is a faith that requires one of two other items that may be in your kitchen. A crock pot or a pressure cooker. Because it's either going to cost you a lot of time or a tremendous amount of pressure to build a faith that lasts. Because a faith that endures is not made in a few seconds. It's made with time. Some of you have experienced a a tremendous amount of pressure in your life. And you would say, as I walk through that pressure, as I'm walking through that pressure now, I can feel God doing a deep and lasting work inside of me. See, a faith that endures, a faith that lasts, is a faith that costs you something. It costs you time, it costs you pressure, it costs sacrifice. That's the life that Jesus is calling us to. That's the faith he's calling us to have. That's the kind of church he's calling us to build. And I would extend to you the same invitation that Jesus extended. Would you come and follow Jesus, taking up your cross, participating in his crucifixion? And would you gain from him your soul for all eternity for those things which are only temporary? Let's pray together. Father, we thank you for the invitation that Jesus extended And Lord, I think even as I reflect on the life of the disciples, when he called Peter and Andrew and James and John and said, come, follow me, Lord, I don't think they had a clue what that fully meant, but they would soon find out. And Lord, as we consider your invitation today, 2,000 years later, we still hear that invitation to come, follow me. And when we read Luke chapter 14, we see the, the cost of discipleship. And Father, we recognize that while it's a free gift to us, it cost you the life of your Son, which you paid as a ransom for our salvation. Lord, may we not cheapen that, but may we heed Jesus' call to take up our cross and follow after him. And Lord, I recognize it's a lifelong pilgrimage. It's nothing that's done in a moment. It's nothing that's done 
in a day or a week or a month. But Lord, as we look back, those of us who who have been stumbling along behind Jesus, Lord, because that's the best we can do is just stumble behind him. But as we have stumbled behind Jesus, maybe for years or decades in some cases, Father, we recognize and see that nothing that we Nothing that we have invested in the kingdom has been lost, but eternity has been gained. For those who are here today, who are part of the crowd, for those who are accompanying Jesus, for those who are witnesses of the crucifixion, I pray that today they would respond to your call. But more, Lord, I pray that those of us who have built our life on the foundation of the knowledge of your Son, the Savior of the world, that, Lord, we would recommit ourselves to building a faith that lasts. Father, we pray that you would move in this time, stir our hearts, transform us, and change us for more than a moment, for more than a lifetime, but for all of eternity. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.